It's Friday, December 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. An FDA advisory committee has recommended authorization of the Pfizer vaccine, and it will soon start making its way through the U.S. But some of the biggest hurdles still to overcome are mistrust in both the government and vaccines themselves. Polls are showing that many still do not want to take the vaccine as soon as it is available. This is especially evident in communities of color who are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. Ian Duncan, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for why many are taking the wait-and-see approach with the COVID vaccine. Next, a story about a Chinese spy targeting California politicians. Between 2011 and 2015, a Chinese intelligence operative named Christine Fang developed extensive ties with local and national politicians, including California Congressman Eric Swalwell. It is not believed that Fang passed along any classified information to the Chinese government, but she did get very close to political power through campaign fundraising, extensive networking, and romantic or sexual relationships with at least two Midwestern mayors. Zach Dorfman, senior staff writer at the Aspen Institute and author of the Axios Codebook newsletter, joins us for how this Chinese spy operated and was rooted out. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We are a regulatory gold standard for the uh, authorization or approval of medical products, including vaccines. We intend to do, and we have done, a very thorough review uh, to get this right, to get all the answers we possibly can from the data. Joining us now is Ian Duncan, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are very close to getting the Pfizer vaccine rolled out here in the United States. But one of the big obstacles to overcome is a really trust in the vaccine. There's a lot of people that are saying they want to have that wait and see approach to this. Anecdotally, just for myself, almost universally, everybody I've asked about the vaccine, they say, yeah, I'm going to get it eventually, but I want I want to see how it goes first. I want other people to start getting it first. There's this kind of two sides of it. There's these people that are in that camp and then others that might have had some experience with COVID-19, whether it's themselves or their family members that are ready to get it right away. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about this. So, yeah, we went out and we, we actually asked people to write into us and give us their thoughts on whether they were really enthusiastic and eager to get this or whether, like you say, they were sort of waiting to see. And we just tried to speak to as many people as we could in kind of different walks of life and people who might have reason to be among the first, people who work in healthcare, then people who work in sort of like critical industries. And like you say, I mean, people's thoughts are all over the place on this. You have some people who are just sort of sick and tired of being locked down and ready to get on with their lives and they see the vaccine as the only real way that that's going to happen. And you have people who I, I found really interesting who are sort of so ground down by this experience after the last nine months or so that they're just not really ready to believe that anything is going to be the answer. And they're worried that this vaccine has been developed very quickly and not confident in its safety, I guess. So, yeah, it just this quite wide range and quite nuanced as well when you get into people's opinions and why they feel the way they do about it. Yeah, and, and that's a very important thing to note, really, is that once the vaccine does start getting rolled out, it's still not the end of the pandemic. It's going to take months for this to reach you know, the majority of people. I think Anthony Fauci has said that we need 70 to 75 percent of Americans to get vaccinated so that we can get back on that road to normalcy. 
And that's gonna, just going to take some time. So we're still going to have to do the social distancing, the mask wearing for a little bit of time. And, you know, for these people that are apprehensive about it, right, they say, I want to see how, how it's going to go for other people. Well, I mean, we're in overdrive with any news about a vaccine. So we're going to be hearing about it as people start getting it. But in a lot of communities of color, you know, black Americans, Latino Americans in these communities specifically, there's a lot of apprehension to this. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is a lot to do with the kind of history of unethical medical research that has been, I guess, these communities have been the victims of. And so there is a real skepticism and distrust of the kind of medical establishment. And, you know, talk to a doctor who serves a predominantly Latino community, and she's just saying it's really heartbreaking because these are the kinds of communities that have often suffered the most with the vaccine, um, excuse me, with the virus, and they're the ones who might be the most hesitant about getting the vaccine. And she said, look, like, I am going to tell my patients I'm going to get this. My kids are going to get this. Like, it's it's safe. I'm really confident about it. But the research also shows that sort of this, this doctor is white and she's the doctor, so she's someone of sort of high social status. And so I'm not sure that the message is going to get through for me. And so the government knows this and they know it's a problem. There's plenty of data to sort of back up this idea. And they're trying to sort of find credible messengers and people who can do this work. I think the other thing here is that because people are going to be waiting for months to get this, there is this sort of hope that I think something the government has that it will sell itself as time goes on that most people will have to wait and so there'll be a growing body of evidence before this really becomes widely available and so that this sort of snowball effect hopefully will just kind of carry people through. Yeah as much as we are pushing this through and you know trying to roll this out as quickly as possible it's going to take time and, and that I have that same exact sentiment I'm hoping that people will start to see it as it does roll out and just the confidence will grow But right now we look at some of the polls and people, uh, you know, maybe 51 percent, I think, in one poll of Americans said that they're likely to take the vaccine when it's available. And beyond that, we're talking about kind of, you know, the order in which people get these vaccines. So right now we're going to do people in nursing homes and healthcare workers. After that, who knows, right? Uh, Maybe it could be first responders, things like that. And we get polls from the New York Fighter Fighters Association, a lot of them saying they won't get it right away. Uh, So these are all difficult things to square away. Yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, you, you are starting to see, I think the sort of the first groups that's been settled on and it seems fairly straightforward. It seems to make sense that people in nursing homes are so many people who died and people who are then on the front lines providing medical care to people. And then it does start to get a little bit stickier as it goes along. And then I guess there's a question of sort of how quickly the supply ramps up that you know, if you can move these groups pretty close together because there's plenty of vaccine, those things maybe are less contentious. But I think what we've started to see this week is that the supply might not come through quite as quickly as was initially anticipated. And so that then makes getting a higher spot on the queue, there's a little bit more of a premium on that then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, On that front, I mean, we're looking at maybe about 35 to 40 million doses available by the end of the year. And people need two doses. So you got to cut that in half, really. And what they were recommending for healthcare workers was 21 million healthcare workers, 3 million nursing home residents. So right away, just in the first group of people, there's not enough vaccines to go around. So, yeah, I mean, this is going to be the long game. It's going to take some months to roll everything out. But uh, this is one of the big messaging problems that the government is going to have, uh, regain people's trust. You know, the FDA is going to be approving it very soon. 
but that in that rollout is going to be very important. So we'll keep an eye out on all of this and hopefully trust in the vaccine does grow. Ian Duncan, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much. I don't have any concern about Mr. Swalwell. Uh, uh, There are those in the Congress who believe, and I am among them, that we should be seeing what influenced the Chinese. I've been fighting them, as you know, for over 30 years. Joining us now is Zach Dorfman, senior staff writer at the Aspen Institute and author of Axios' Codebook newsletter. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Great to be with you. I love a good spy story. And uh, just this week on Axios, you wrote up a big story about a Chinese intelligence operative who had developed extensive ties with local and national politicians. Uh, A lot of this was centering around California politicians, most notably Representative Eric Swalwell. This happened back between 2011 and 2015, but it just paints this whole story of how the Chinese intelligence officials kind of play this long game with developing these ties and embedding people, you know, to get information and all of that stuff. Who knows what exactly the end goal is, but I mean, there's just so much of it. And this story centers around a woman, a Chinese national named Christine Fang or Fang Fang. Zach, tell us a little bit about this story. There's so much to get to on this. Well, that was a a really great summary. So Christine Fang was a student at a Bay Area university from roughly 2011 to 2015. Well, she was a student. Sources told us that she was in her late 20s, early 30s at the time. And she was incredibly active in local student groups. And she started developing, first via those groups, uh, connections to local Bay Area politicians, city council people, mayors, congressional candidates, sitting Congress people, people who eventually would run and and win congressional races like Representative Swalwell and Representative Rokana. And the U.S. counterintelligence officials believed that she was, in fact, operating as an asset of China's main civilian intelligence service, which is called the Ministry of State Security, and that her purpose for being in the country and developing all these connections was to make those inroads with local politicians and both collect intelligence and information on them and then also potentially steer people in a more pro-China direction, although it doesn't appear that the operation proceeded for long enough to really do that in any substantial way. She was involved in you know, helping create like a sister city between a local Bay Area city and a city in mainland China. But you know, that's the kind of core of the investigation that the U.S. intelligence officials launched was because she was gaining so much access to local Bay Area politicians. I mean, as things progressed, she started engaging in fundraising activities, not necessarily cutting checks herself. There's no record in SEC filings of her doing so, but of working as a bundler. And a bundler is somebody who helps connect potential donors to candidates. So that can be a very powerful and influential position because you can be facilitating these connections that end up opening up new donor networks and communities to politicians. And it's our understanding that she facilitated um, multiple local candidates, including Representative Swalwell, in terms of being a bundler. And the big question is, how do they know when somebody is not just necessarily very politically active, but they're actually involved like something with this? My understanding is, that they were actually following somebody else, you know, looking into them 
And then they kind of notice a lot of red flags out of Christine Fong. And one of the notes that you had in your article, which just totally makes sense and pops when you hear it, you know, the Chinese Communist Party knows that today's mayors and city council members are tomorrow's governors and members of Congress, just like Eric Swalwell. He even ran for president. You know, he didn't make it too far, but what if? And they're gaining information, private, maybe not classified information, but private information about their actions, their habits, all that stuff. Well, I think that's a really important point, and that really speaks to the nature of what U.S. counterintelligence officials believe is China's strategy, which is that you start at the local level because local politicians, you know, today's mayors or city council people can be governor, senator, the incoming vice president of the United States. I'm saying these as examples because Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. She's from San Francisco. Dianne Feinstein is from San Francisco. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is from San Francisco. And Kamala Harris was San Francisco district attorney. So those folks are not a part of this story at all. But it's just illustrative in terms of the fact that all of these very, very powerful national politicians got their start in Bay Area politics. And so it makes sense if you're willing to invest people over the long term. Now, of course, many or most of those folks that you speak with that, you know, your local, you know, mixers in the Bay Area are not going to become the next vice president or the next governor, but it's very possible that one or two might become quite prominent. And that happened with Congressman Swalwell, where when Christine Fong met him, according to the evidence that we've seen, both you know photographic evidence and conversations with sources, where he was a, a city council person in a mid-sized city in the Bay Area, and he had a real meteoric rise. You know, he became a congressperson, and then he got a seat on the House Intelligence Committee, which is one of the most sensitive positions you can have in Congress. And so, there's absolutely no, and I need to, I need to underscore this: there's absolutely no evidence that Congressman Swalwell did anything wrong. Once the FBI alerted him to their suspicions about this person, his office broke ties with her immediately. But it's more important as a lesson about how the Chinese intelligence services do what they do and why most, you know, mayors and city council people, not just the Bay Area, of course, you know, might think, well, why would a foreign intelligence service be interested in me? And I think that this story is really a case study in precisely why that might be. Back to Christine Fong a little bit. How did her cover work? Because she infiltrated a lot of these campaigns, obviously got very close to people. They said she also might have engaged in sexual or romantic relationships with at least two mayors of Midwestern cities. I think U.S. intelligence caught her on video, not maybe not performing the acts, but getting involved in some of these acts. So how did the cover work and, and how did it all end? Because she left the country and, and severed a lot of ties with the people she cultivated these very relationships with. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there. You know, on your on your first question, what I would say is that, I mean, she was operating as a covert Chinese intelligence asset and that she was not walking around saying, hi, I'm actually I'm I'm Christine. I'm and I want to say, again, these are the suspicions or allegations of U.S. intelligence officials, but she was not representing herself as an overt representative of the Chinese government. So the connections she was building, you know, she was doing so in a way that was not clear on the ultimate objective of them. However, you know, her strategy was to become involved in local politics and to get involved in civic participation through student groups and a group called the PAPA, which is a civic organization that is based in Sacramento and Washington, D.C., whose mission is a laudable one, and that's to get Asian Americans more involved in politics. 
you know, that's kind of the complexity of this story, right? It's because she was using avenues for things that are unambiguously good, which is trying to encourage civic participation for groups and individuals, in particular in the Bay Area. And you have to step back and understand, too, that there's a long history of anti-Asian and particularly you know, anti-Chinese discrimination in the Bay Area. So you have groups that are trying to encourage more civic participation, which is a really, really good thing. But then you have somebody using those vectors or those avenues to try and do things that are a little bit more covert and potentially operate on behalf of a, of a foreign government. You know, there's a little bit of ambiguity in how she left. You know, as you mentioned before, at some point, during her period here from 2011 to 2015, the FBI caught wind of what was going on and its suspicions. From our reporting, it was from her contacts with a Chinese diplomat based in San Francisco, who was actually, you know, according to the suspicions of FBI investigators, was an undercover intelligence officer, you know, an MSS officer. So they started looking at Christine because she had had some kind of interaction with this individual who they already believe was operating as a Chinese spy. But this person was, again, they were operating under diplomatic cover. And, you know, eventually there was electronic surveillance. And this electronic surveillance did pick up her, you know, engaged in some kind of sexual act with a mayor from a Midwestern city. And there's also evidence of that she had a romantic or sexual relationship with at least one other Midwestern mayor. That's an intensive investigation where you start putting the time and resources into electronic surveillance of of somebody. It it means the bureau is quite serious. There's a lot of legal steps that are required to have something like that occur. And then by 2015, she was supposed to go to a conference um, in Washington, D.C., another civic conference. She traveled all over the country and met with mayors and local officials all over the country. This was part of what she did. And this was part of what U.S. investigators believe was done as part of her activities as a potential Chinese operative. And we spoke to somebody who said that all of a sudden she said, I can't make it. And she just went back to China and has not been seen in the United States since. And we spoke to four current and former U.S. intelligence officials for the story. We spoke to over 20 people, current and former Bay Area politicians, political operatives, students, all kinds of folks. And on the community side of this, people said she just disappeared. One day she was everywhere, and then one day she just disappeared. And so for some people, that was a really distinct memory, right? Because imagine somebody who is so involved in local politics, and you see them at all these events and everywhere, and they're networking, and they're active, and then they're just gone. And for a lot of people, that was the last memory they had of her until two journalists from Axios came knocking. (laughs) Uh, It's a very well-researched story. I suggest everybody go to Axios and read this story by Zach. There's so much into it. And and as you mentioned before, you know, just kind of underscores how more aggressive these Chinese spy services have kind of gotten and shown more interest in America and uh, these, you know, rising political stars. So uh, everybody go check it out, please. Uh, Zach Dorfman, senior staff writer at the Aspen Institute and author of the Axios Codebook newsletter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.